Well, it's good to see everyone out this morning. Uh, I hope everyone's had a good day so far. So thankful that you've come our way. And I don't believe we have any visitors, although we are. We do see some old faces who's uh, gone elsewhere. But they, every now and then, from time to time, they'll come and visit. So it's good to see you with us once again. I'd invite you to take your sermon outlines out. I tried to do a theme for the song service based on the <clears throat> sermon topic dealing with Jesus the Savior. And as you can see, the Savior from hell or Savior from sin. And many of you, rightfully so, would say both. As I would. Jesus saves us from eternal condemnation just as he saves us from the bondage of sin. I want to give you two quotes. The fellow who provided these quotes, his name is Arthur W. Pink. Many of you may not know who he is. I didn't know who he was until I actually looked him up. <clears throat> and then I couldn't believe who he was because he said these quotes. So I'll give you the quotes and then I'll tell you who he is. And is woefully misrepresented by the present day evangelist. And boy, when I read that part, I was like, whew, he's talking to me. <laughs> but then I realized he was talking about everybody. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived, for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. And let me tell you who Arthur Pink is. He's a Calvinist. And I couldn't believe that once I read that quote, and I understood what the quote meant, because Calvinists, in short, they believe that God has decreed all everything. He's decreed who's saved, who is the elect, he's, he's decreed who's not part of the elect, basically, uh, if, you're, if you're not understanding what I mean, is he's already got a saved master list, and either your name's on it or it's not. And he did it before, before the beginning, before the creation, before everything. And that's why I couldn't believe that a Calvinist said the truth on this. Because if you paid attention, I'm going to read the second part of the quote to you again. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived, for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. Well, the problem with that quote is, is if you're a Cal Calvinist, it doesn't matter if you desire to be delivered or not. Either the Lord delivered you or He's not going to deliver you. And there's nothing, not a single thing you can do to change that. The second quote also comes from the same man. When Christ saves a soul, he saves not only from hell, but from the power of sin. And what I want us to understand from, 
Both of these quotes are absolutely 100% true, by the way. Because the problem is, is if all we're seeking to do in our lives is to be delivered from the lake of fire, We want to be delivered from hell, but we don't want to be delivered from the power of sin. The thing that enslaves us in our lives. We don't want to be delivered from our carnality. We don't want to be delivered from our worldliness. Lord, don't make me change. Don't give me the gospel. If we don't want to be delivered from the power of sin and from the deception of sin, then guess what? We will not be delivered from the lake of fire. And that's what we need to understand this morning. Both of these quotes are absolutely truthful, even coming from the Calvinist. We have to have the proper attitude or the proper disposition regarding what we are being saved from. There's no doubt in my mind that we are saved from both. We are saved from hell, but ultimately we are saved from the power and the enslavement of sin. It's no longer the, 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 that power of sin, that deception of sin, it no longer rules our lives. We don't have that heavy baggage to carry around on our shoulders anymore. That through Jesus we are truly reconciled back to God. We have true forgiveness. It's not that constant reminder each and every year. We don't have that cloud over our heads. So I want us to start out in Matthew chapter 1. Take your outlines. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. Starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, I want this to be a true reality for us all. While I do want you all to be delivered from the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, I want you to be delivered from hell. If you do not come out of your sin, and you do not repent in turn, and change, and stop engaging in the worldliness and in the things that separates us from God, there is no deliverance from hell. Because we haven't changed. Because we are the same people that we have always been. So we need to understand that Jesus died for us in the premise. Uh, Turn your Bibles to John 3. I didn't want to have to put the whole context on the outline. I wanted to make sure I had enough room. Turn your Bibles to John 3. 
starting at verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him. And it's for a purpose. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Oh, so this is that reality. You know, people can say that they believe in Jesus. They can say, well, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. But if you continue to live in the darkness and practice those things in the darkness and engage in those activities, you are still of darkness. There's no light in your life. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And see, through the gospel, the gospel has the power to deliver us from the evil, from the darkness. For everyone who does the evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Go over to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 11. He says, Paul says to the, to the church here, to these Christians, he says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-3, we see Paul saying, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And see, that's the problem that the Calvinists and that so many people out there in the denominational world and even so many people that are claiming to be members of the body of Christ, they are being deceived by their own lies by telling themselves, well, you know what, God, your grace is sufficient, which is true. I'm not saying it's not true. Your grace is sufficient enough to make it where I don't have to change. I don't have to repent of everything in my life. I can remain in, in these few little sins and, and be okay and be right with God. I don't think so. Because you're not holding fast the Word, which is what saves us. It gives us the power, the ability to overcome these things, the carnality and the worldliness in our lives. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for what? Our sins, according to the Scriptures.
Then look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. You see, there's the aspect of we're being saved from hell. We're being saved from eternal condemnation because if you experience the wrath of God, you will not experience the presence of God at all. You will be away from God and His presence for all eternity. And it's eternal. It's forever. It's not a one-time thought of, oh, I'm not with God and then I just cease to exist. It's in fact eternal. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now the reason why this is made possible is is because through the life of Jesus and through our belief and our trust in Him, in God's plan, in His eternal scheme of man's redemption, that it transforms us into a new creature, into a new being. Go back over to Romans chapter 4. I meant chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And look at this. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What were the only sacrifices that were acceptable under the law? Unblemished. There were, there were certain requirements. Just as there's still requirements today, even in the law of Christ, even under Christ, we still have our obligations, we still have responsibilities that we have to uphold and that we have to keep. It's not that we're earning our way into heaven. It's not that we're telling God, once I come up out of that watery grave of baptism, that God, now you owe me. That's not what we're doing. Think about the walls of Jericho. You know, each day they had to walk around them, and then that seventh day they had to walk around it seven times. And then the trumpet had to blow, and then the walls fell down. Did the people make the walls fall down, or did God? God did. But if they would have only walked around it three times and said, you know what, this is kind of redundant. Why do we have to do this? Do we even have to do it at all? What if the people on that seventh day would have said, you know what? That's just a really long walk. I don't feel like walking around seven times. And then they didn't do it. Would those walls of Jericho still fail? Here's the thing. They were already told that God's given them Jericho. It was theirs to take. It was their possession. Just like the grace of God is ours to take. It's ours to receive. But if we don't fulfill our obligations, if God said, run a mile in order to receive the grace of God, guess what we need to do? We need to go out and run a mile. But He doesn't tell us to run a mile. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You see. 
And so we present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Not that we're perfect. He's not saying perfect to God. Acceptable. Which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts 3, 19. Look at what it says. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So as you can see, it's clear as day. The Lord came to this earth. He trained up men, right? He had a selection of men whom He was with, whom He trained, who He helped develop into disciples. So that once He left and went back, to God, they would continue spreading this message that through Jesus, through His blood, you can have the forgiveness of sins and you can conquer death. And that it's through this message that it has the power and the ability to transform our lives. That we are no longer living as the same kind of people, but that we are truly changed. Now let's go over to Romans chapter 6. This will be the, the bulk of our study this morning. Romans chapter 6. And there's a lot to take in here. Most of my commentary that I'm going to give this morning is going to be through verse 6 through 18. But we are going to start at verse 1. So in Romans 6, we see, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so he's, he's making that point. You know, we, and he's, he's going to further clarify that do you not understand... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? So don't you remember that when you obeyed the gospel, when you repented, when you confessed Jesus, when you were baptized in water to have your sins washed away, don't you understand that your life is now being transformed? You're being a new creation. You are a new creature. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We're not the same person any longer. And if we are, then there was never repentance. And if we are, there was never a change. And then if we're still in the worldliness, and if we're still carnal, if we are still fleshly minded, 
Think about the consequences of that. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. But that's if, see, it's conditioned. Just because you go and get dunked doesn't mean that, oh, everything's hunky-dory. Because if you haven't changed, you got wet. And that's all that transpired. That's all that took place. So knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So there's that power that I'm trying to get us to see. Yes, He very much is a Savior from hell, but He is a Savior for us from our sins and from the consequences of our sins. So that that body of sin might be done away with us so that we would no longer be slaves. So that rule of sin is now broken. It no longer rules over our lives. We're no longer enslaved to it. And so I want us to understand, because sometimes we just chalk it up as, well, just do not sin. And that's probably what my sermon sounds a lot like. Because I don't want you to sin. Stop sinning. I don't need to sin. I don't want to sin. So I need to stop sinning. So don't sin. But we need to also view it as not from the instructive aspect, but maybe the encouragement aspect of this, that look at it from the blessing aspect, from the blessing point of view, that we can be set free from sin and we're no longer enslaved to it. That sounds a whole lot better to me. And so we die with Christ in order to be free from sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if you haven't really died, if you haven't really crucified the deeds of the flesh, if you're still just as carnal minded and just as worldly as you were before, you are not free. Now, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. And so even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is also saying here is that there is a very legitimate possibility that sin still remains in our lives. And if it does, you have not died in Christ. You have not died with Christ. And you are not alive with Christ with God. Because the sin is still master in your life. And so what Paul's saying is, is that we have to be deliberate in our actions. So let's continue on here. 
So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lust. Do not. So this is a deliberate action where when, when we recognize the, the, car, the carnal and fleshly mind and behaviors in our, in our lives, we tell ourselves, nope, I can't go there. I can't do that. You see? And do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sins as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And so what then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine or teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. <clears throat> so everything that I've just read tells me and it tells us that we have to be deliberate in our actions. We, we can't serve two masters. We know that passage in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and sin. But if we allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, then we are now back under bondage. We are now back in, in slavery. And so we have to search for ways to present ourselves to God. And what is that through? That's through righteousness. That's through holiness. That's through godliness. That's through the gospel. But I want you to notice something that, that Paul he calls for us to consider the parts of our body. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So think about that. Everything, every part of our being, needs to be presented as instruments of righteousness. So are tongues as instruments of righteousness or are they weapons for unrighteousness? What about our eyes? Are our eyes used for purity or impurity? What about our ears? Do we listen to filthy, nasty things? Or do we listen to things that are good, that are edifying, that are uplifting? That goes back to our tongue. Do we speak things that are good and edifying and up uplifting and encouraging to one another? Or do we use our hands as instruments for holiness or for sin? Do we possess anything in our lives that's for purity and self-control, or is it for wickedness and 
and impurity. What about our mind? Do we glorify God just in our thoughts? Forget the the premise of of trying to be a showboat. I, I don't want you to think that that's what we need to be doing. But what about your thoughts? Can you glorify God just in your thoughts alone? Paul is telling us that Not to let any member of our body be given over to unrighteousness, to ungodliness. Don't allow anything to succumb to the deception of sin. Uh, Also, let's turn to 1 John real quick. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, and just drop down to verse 9, because this is a parallel, and, and I would say partial commentary to what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin Because he is born of God. Now I want us to understand what John is not saying. Because so many people come here to proof text this. And they'll proof text this verse and say, well see, the Christian, you cannot sin a sin that would lead to death. Because that right there says the the seed of God, it abides in him and he cannot sin. No. No. That's not what John's saying, and that's not what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6. What Paul is saying and what John is saying is that it's it's incompatible. It's not compatible to say that we can be joined with Christ and still be serving sin. That's what Paul's saying, and that is essentially what John is saying right here. These two things cannot... Work together. It's an inconceivable idea to say that you can be right with God and still go out and murder. You say that you're right with God, yet you're actively cheating on your spouse. You're right with God, but you are actively constantly lying. You open your mouth and lies just fly out of your mouth. And what John is saying and what Paul is saying is that this is incompatible. This is not possible. It is impossible to be right with God and still serve sin. God has to rule our lives. Jesus has to be our example. The body of sin cannot be in charge. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think about the law for just a moment. Why the law? Because of sin, because of transgression. That's what essentially Galatians 3.19 says. So why the law? The law 
showed the Jews sin. It showed them what happens to them. And so the law showed them sin and it it made them their slaves. And it gave them no hope because once they committed sin under the law of Moses, that was it. They could never be made righteous. They could never be justified. So the law showed us that that we, or that the Jews rather, this would be more correct, were miserable sinners But Jesus came to show us grace because He gives greater grace. Jesus came to remove that obstacle out of our way, that obstacle of sin, meaning that we are set free from the law of sin, that law of bondage. We can be free from slavery. Jesus truly redeems us in His death and in His resurrection. Jesus gives us hope. Jesus makes it possible for us to leave sin's power and to come under the power of God. For those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what kind of Savior are you looking for this morning? Is it just for for the Savior from hell? Is that all you're looking for? Hey, I I don't want to go to hell. But I don't want to change my life. I've got some bad news for you. Because the good news doesn't provide salvation to those who have no intention of changing. The good news provides good news for those who will go to God humbly and submit to His will. Confess Jesus, says the Christ, the Son of God. If you won't confess Him before men, neither will He confess you before His Father who is in heaven. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. To have your sins washed away through the blood of Jesus. Why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you're here this morning, you've never rendered obedience to the gospel. The baptistry is ready. And we are willing to help you. Maybe you've done that. And you recognize that you've been looking at it from the perspective of that He's the Savior from hell. And He didn't really... Deliver me from my sin. It is that time right here, right now, to make that change. To realize that Jesus has delivered you from sin. Look at the bigger picture. Reconcile yourself back to God today before it's everlasting too late. If you're here this morning and you're subject to our public invitation... We invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.